I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series, brought to you today by Freightstar. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Freightstar for sponsoring today's episode. Transporting heavy machinery doesn't have to be a hassle. Freightstar makes it easy with an online marketplace that connects you for free with a trusted network of professional brokers and carriers. Find out more at Freightstar.com. That's F-R numeral eight S-T-A-R dot com. Wolford, North Dakota no-tiller Paul Overby has seen plenty of rewards as a result of no-tilling and using cover crops over the past 15 years but he really took a deep dive into focusing on soil health when he started raising oats for General Mills. He's recently signed on to the General Mills Regenerative Agriculture Pilot Program, which aims to advance regenerative practices on 1 million acres of farmland by 2030. At the 2020 National No-Tillage Conference, I caught up with Paul along with General Mills Senior Principal Scientist Research Agronomist Tom Rabay. For this podcast, we'll hear excerpts of that conversation in which the pair talked about the General Mills program, explaining overarching goals and benefits, the types of farmers General Mills is targeting, what a farmer is getting into when he or she signs up, and more. In addition, Paul talks about the niche marketing he does with the crops he farms and how he's looking to further integrate soil health principles on his operation. To start off, we'll hear a bit from Tom about his background. I'm a research agronomist with General Mills, and I lead our agriculture research team, which is comprised of several other soil scientists and um, research agronomists that uh, help help with a variety of different um, regenerative ag soil health sustainability initiatives that we have within the company, and also helping to work within our own wheat supply chains for our businesses. Um, grew up on a farm in southern Minnesota. And it's really been great to be able to work with all these other farmers now scattered throughout you know, Kansas, through the Dakotas, and up in Manitoba and Saskatchewan that, that work within our supply chain regions and that we buy oats and wheat from for General Mills. Yeah, okay. And so have you been sort of involved in working with farmers in the, the no-till and the mm-hmm. sustainable and the regenerative all along? Correct, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'd say that so General Mills has kind of been on this journey and probably going back 10 years in a lot of ways. So starting out with initiatives like Field to Market, if you remember that. So Field to Market, sustainable footprinting, sustainability, and working with grower groups, grower networks, again, within our supply sourcing regions. So like the Dakotas for hardwood spring wheat or in Canada for oats or Kansas for winter wheat, those types of things. So we were doing sustainable footprinting. And then about like three or four years ago, we started working with some other organizations around soil health when the soil health renaissance was really starting to take off. So working with like the Nature Conservancy and the Soil Health Partnership and the Soil Health Institute and understanding the importance of soil health, really, you know, kind of diving deep into that and then through our foundation, our charitable foundation, funding those research activities at those organizations. So like, so about 18 months ago then, that's when we started to partnership with Understanding Ag, so Gabe Brown's organization, and going out into, again, regions where we source grains from oats or wheat within our supply regions putting out these soil health academies that Gabe Brown was leading within regions and then signing up growers to getting to to uh, sign up for a one-on-one coaching uh, with the understanding egg consultant for a three to five year time frame commitment and so we started out in 
in the Northern Plains, in North Dakota, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, we have 45 growers signed up to get one-on-one -on -one coaching throughout that region that grow oats and supply oats to General Mills. And now this just recently, just months ago, we started a second project with Understanding Ag in Kansas where we went on out and got 25 wheat growers signed up near the Wichita area that grow winter wheat for that goes into our supply chain as well. And then we've also started a third project on regenerative dairy. Uh -huh. So dairy using uh, some of these you know, soil health, no-till no cover crops and uh, like rotational grazing for like replacement heifers within systems for, for dairy that goes into our Yokley brand. So how many farmers total are we talking? So these are all what we refer to as pilots. And so like, and so nowhere near representing like entire supply chain. So what we're trying to really do is start small and kind of develop like you know, baseline data, looking at things like, you know, so improvements to soil health, improvements to biodiversity, improvements to farmer economic viability, and use that, inf that information then to scale across entire supply chains over the next upcoming, you know, several years, three to five years. So, as I mentioned, so in the Northern Plains, it's 45 growers, and the Southern Plains, 25 growers, and in dairy, it's around up to eight growers is what we're having, eight, eight dairy farms right now. So, you could say it's small, but uh, we're really hope we're working with, you know, key data partners to, to help us gather information on, like, you know, soil health improvements. So, like the Soil Health Institute, Soil Health Partnership, you know, measurements around soil health improvements, on these farms that are, you know, adopting, you know, no-till and cover crops and animal integration and, you know, keeping the ground covered, those types of things. And along with, you know, biodiversity, insect biodiversity and other adjacent landscape biodiversity of insects and vertebrates, birds, that type of thing. And then again, of course, farmer, farmer uh, profitability or farmer resiliency. And I guess you might ask the question, why is General Mills interested in doing all this stuff in the first place? Why have we invested millions of dollars with you know soil health partnership and you know soil health institute you know over the past years is because as a food company we're so re reliant on what comes off these off the farmland and off through these supply chain regions that we buy our ingredient grains from and so that's important to us and so we see with changes in you know environment and weather and those types of things and you know uh, rain events and dry dry system dry events we hope that um, farmers adopting better soil health practices hopefully should become more resilient over the long term which then should also help us as a company kind of uh, you know manage some of the highs and lows of you know peaks and valleys of, of supply that, uh, that we need to have for our facilities to operate for our processing facilities to run on. So what sort of benchmarks or what sort of data are, are they collecting? So we're really looking at so the soil health uh, Components are probably the easiest, most understood by a lot of the, you know, the soil science community that's out there. So it's like aggregate stability, water infiltration, you know, soil organic carbon, organic matter. You know, some of those more more weight, uh, tests that are pretty measurable as far as for, for that. And so we're, we've, we're we're going out. We're doing. We did a lot of baseline sampling of every farmer in every field. You know, that when we start this project, we're going to continue to do that over time and look at. You know more carbon in the soil, more organic matter in the soil over time and that mm -hmm. type of thing. And look at, you know, trafficability for farmers so that they can drive across this as they've adopted no-till and mycorrhizal fungi. We're looking at the, those types of measurements that, that you could get at any, um, you know, soil science lab. So that's so that's that's kind of the easy one. That's where we start. And kind of, and really what we believe or what we hope happens is the rest follows. So we, we feel like that you know, biodiversity should improve. If you improve soil health and growers are, you know, no-till and cover crops and, you know, leaving the soil covered, some of your other biodiversity is going to 
will, will follow follow in place as well. And so you should see you know more earthworms and more uh, beneficial insects and maybe more pollinators on edge of field areas of that type of thing. Yeah. And then finally, you know, the tougher one and the one that we're talking about with farmers and we talk extensively about with Paul is, is that kind of that economic resiliency or economic viability for farmers, farmers sustaining staying business. And again, the initial kind of data that's out there that shows that, you know, as you change your soils, you improve your soils, you add organic matter and carbon back to your soil, you tend to have less inputs and you tend to be more profitable. And so we have programs in place to capture and measure all that data. And, I mean, that's what we would like to see is growers to become more resilient, more profitable over time by uh, fixing the soil. And so are the farmers starting to see those things uh, come along? I mean, Paul, you can probably chime in on that. Well, because I've been working in the system for a while, and again, what, what they're doing is starting a baseline measurement. Sure. So, okay. you know, one year, one year of data for their Northern Plains farmers yet. So, you know, just to say, you know, but what, what we've seen on our farm over time as we've adopted some of this, but not all of this is, yeah, we're saving input costs. For example, the fertilizer, you know, we're starting to take credits for our soil organic matter. And, and so if we've got uh, soil organic matters of five or 6%, we're actually taking nitrogen credits for that soil organic matter. That's not something that's normally done. And, and so we've added that in. So my fertilizer costs compared to others are probably considerably lower. I don't know what they're doing other than chit chat in the neighborhood, but, but our fertilizer costs are down. We've started becoming more uh, sensitive through integrated pest management, also supported by say the NRCS CSP program. Do we use a fungicide? Do we use an insecticide? And we're becoming more and more picky in this whole regenerative ag program with understanding ag has kind of reinforced that we're headed in the right direction with that because they're starting, they also are looking at how that impacts then soil and insect uh, biodiversity. And so I'm thinking of it from an economics, right? Do I really need to spray? Can I save myself $15, $18 an acre by saving a fungicide application? Right. Now we're starting to go to take a look at what impact of that fungicide application having on the rest of the ecosystem if it's used when you don't really need it. Mm -hmm. Are we starting to impact other things that we shouldn't be? Yeah. Um, and so even with fertility, are we, so I'm after for economics, that was my first you know, thing. It's like, okay, so I got soil again, matter, let's cut it back. But are we then actually adding to the soil resiliency and the diversity of the biological things going on on the soil by not over fertilizing these soils and, and therefore making the plants work harder, the roots work harder, and letting the microbiology in the soil work a little harder to move all those nutrients around and still not lose yield. Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the things as we start developing all these measurements in the system that are really cool. Yeah. That's like, I wanna see this four years from now because right. we've been kind of headed in that direction for a different set of reasons. Mm -hmm. But if we can start adding in all of the biological and ecological benefits in on top of it, we start getting a real win-win. Right. And that's, that's exciting. That is. Yeah, how long have you been doing no-till then? Since 2005. 2005, and then cover crops came in after that sometime? Started in 2011 was the first year we actually had a decent stand of cover crops. 2010, I did about two acres and I quit. <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so what, what does the program look like for the General Mills regenerative program? When you're signing up a, a farmer, what does that look like? What is a farmer signing on to? And are you also, are you starting with people who have no-till experience or are they so anybody? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So basically what we've done is we start out with uh, these uh, soil health academies. So, so it's an open invite and we've had overwhelming response to these academies. So we've had way more growers come and are interested in the program you know, from the start. So, so that's been really encouraging to see the interest from growers. And then we really, it's really, we ask growers that want to participate based on their willingness, or at least as they say, yes, we want to be a part of this. And we, to your point, we did not want to select growers that are already doing no-till, or already doing no-till cover crops. So that, that kind of defeats that purpose. Yeah. So we have a range of growers. In fact, in the Northern Plains, we even have organic growers that are in the, in the in, in our program. Hmm. And so it's really a willingness for them to want to participate for three year, minimum of three years and up to five years to allow us to come on in and do some soil sampling and take some of this baseline data and then really be open to the coaching, that one-on-one -on -one coaching. Okay. And I think that the, and I've not been involved with the coaching because I'm not the farmer, but the, Paul could speak to this maybe a little better. One of the things that Understanding Egg does, it doesn't necessarily tell you a recipe of like, oh, you should do this, and then go do this, and then buy this cover crop seed. It really, um, they really try to coach you up to, into like looking and seeing as to what are some of the issues on your farm that you want to solve, and talking you through like what would be some of those solutions. Do you have a water infiltration problem? Do you have a water holding problem? Is soil erosion one of your concerns? Um, do you have access to livestock or grazing or cattle? How, if you don't, how could you go about doing some of that? Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add to that? Yep, that, and that's actually part of the part that I like as a farmer, uh, really like as, as a farmer, because having that coach, they're not, yeah, they're not saying here's what to do. They're making you think, <laughs> which is great. And it's like, well, why did you do it this way? Uh, what were you helping to gain? If we did it this way, do you think you'd gain more? So, for example, uh, Kent Solberg happens to be my coach through Understanding Ag, and we sat down in uh, in the fall, or actually in the summer, late summer, talking about what kind of cover crop mixes we should use to come in and follow that particular field. Uh, our project field this year had field peas in it, and so. Uh, what are we going to plant as a cover crop and why and what kinds of things are we trying to gain and looking back through the rotation history of that field and so we kind of you know kicked around some different ideas as what what to use and and that's you know that's that's huge because one of the challenges for farmers with cover crop mixes you hear all kinds of things and it's like what do I do and some guys just throw up their hands and walk away uh, and and so having somebody to kind of help you think through that process is good. Then we sat down again, just a, actually a, a about a month ago, and looked at then what had gone on through the year, talked about the cover crops we did planted, and what are we going to do next year? What's the crop that's going on in that field? Why are you choosing that crop? What are some things that you could do that might advance uh, soil health, improve biology by planting this crop or that crop? You know, pros and cons, and and kind of came up with a plan and. No, Kent's pretty good. He's he's more like a nudger, <laughs> so so than than a here's how to do it. Mm -hmm. And and I know Mike uh, Teeley, who's the other coach up in Canada. He's got the same kind of personality. This kind of help you think it through, and and that's that's great. I think that's what farmers like. We don't like to be told what to do, <laughs> <laughs> but we like to be helped what to do. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay.
What's the scope that we're talking about? Your acreage for the General Mills program? So when we, when we enrolled, we were asked to nominate a few fields uh, to potentially be in the project. And I think, I'd, yeah, three of them. And, and then the, I don't know, I think it was Understanding Ag that picked one of the three fields to use. And so I don't know what they did on everybody else's farm, but on my, my particular farm, they took, it's a relatively small field, it's 45 acres, but it has some potential to it because it's adjacent to livestock. So there's some potential there. I don't own livestock, we rent our pasture out. And so I don't control the cattle, uh, but we've looked at then the potential of bringing them in for after grazing. Um, so that, that's out there as a potential in part of the project. Um, my father used to do that 30 years ago. Okay. The fences have all gone into disrepair since his son took over the farm <laughs> and told him to sell the cows. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, so, th so that's how we, they picked the field. Uh -huh. and, and then so we focused on that 45 acre uh, Do you field. know what they based that decision on? No, they didn't really tell me. I'm presuming some of it had to do with, with that potential pasture. Some of the, there's grasslands in the area. There's also trees in the area. Um, I kind of wanted them to pick one with more wetlands. This one's only got some kind of minor wetlands in it, but it's adjacent to a lot of things, so. I don't know the exact reason how that, Paul's correct in how he described the selection process. I don't know the exact reason. I think it had a little bit to do with potential. And then you might wonder, so yeah, you know, 48 farmers and we've asked them to really just focus on one field right now and, and really the reason why we went about it that way is because <clears throat> we don't want growers to make a wholesale change right if they got 2,000 acres or 5,000 acres obviously they're not going to be able to focus on managing yeah. that much change of that many acres in one year and so the thought is, is and for most growers and I've heard this not just from understanding egg but from other consultants as well is okay so pick a field start to do something well on that field first mm -hmm. and in the meantime you're going to be thinking about um it's going to branch out across your farm so okay i'm going to focus right. on this 100 acre field this year well next year i'm going to be focused on that 100 acre field but you know what i might try something else over here on this other quarter section nearby and then the third year you're, you're continuing to transform your thought process on the whole farm but you're continuing to focus in on that one field and, and eventually the whole farm will transform as well. You'll be, you know, no-till in the cover crops and, you know, doing some of those things or animal integration across your entire enterprise at some point. But it's really just to help farmers do really well at first on, on that one field. And I think that's, my understanding is pretty common advice. If you're going to try cover crops for the first time in your life, you don't need to do the whole farm. Sure. You just need to pick a field and try to do really well there first. Yeah. So. Yeah. And so you've got the coach and he's helping you with this relatively small part mm -hmm. of your farm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have a contract with General Mills for the grain at the end of the season or no? No. Not in the regenerative no. egg program, okay. no, we don't. No. So we, there's, a, there's a whole mix of things out there. We're buying grain from these regions, from farmers. Uh, in some areas of Canada, we do contract roads. But you know, but for the regenerative egg program, no, we're not, we're not uh, securing the grain that comes off the farm. The farmers can sell that wherever they want they to. They can do it with yeah. Grain yeah. Grain okay. So again, it comes back to like resilient supply chains. Um, we look at it as uh, you know being able to secure grains and words that we need for you know for years to come. 
Um, we also know that we don't want to be telling farmers how to do this or where to go, but we really also want to be enablers, and that's why we're investing in these programs like the Soil Health Institute, why we're investing in understanding ag. That's why we're working with growers and going out and doing, you know, grower meetings with them because we really want to be enablers, but we really don't want to be. You know, we're not farmers and we don't have farm expertise in the company per se, but we want to at least enable this regenerative or, you know, pathway. And, and it really does start with soil health, improving soil health. We, we've always come back to that first. You know, the first pillar of, of really doing all things well is really kind of fixing soil and, you know, no-till and cover crops are a big part of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. We do hope that someday, you know, there are consumers that, and this is becoming, you know, no-till cover crops regenerative ag soil health is starting to percolate up with consumers. Mm -hmm. And so we do think that, and, and that would be good if, because that will help pull these ideas through the supply chain. And so, right. so we are seeing, you know, some consumers that the, the concept does resonate with them, particularly organic consumers. Improving soil health and kind of going down this thought process of regenerative ag and thinking holistically about the farm and the ecosystem that it is in does reduce or uh, the use of pesticides over time. And we've heard that time and time again. The growers that, that implement, you know, cover crops and some of these uh, and some of these intercropping techniques, right. they're seeing a reduction in the need for fungicide on certain crops over time. Right. If you have enough um, cover crop and you're say roller crimp, you're rye in the spring and planting green soybeans into that rye cover crop, you have less need for herbicide use. Right. And so some of that information is out there. Some of that data is starting to come. So the use of regenerative practices does has resulted in, the, in yeah, less pesticide use in, in certain scenarios over time. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. so, yep. so one of the other soil health principles is, is rotation, okay, mm -hmm. which is always a challenge for corn and soybean farmers. Right. That, that Dwayne Beck likes to call that a two crop monoculture. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> the in, in our farm we raise eight crops oh, okay. on, on 1400 crop acres. Mm. So I get to do a lot of drill settings and combine settings. The ability to rotate those crops has a lot of impacts. One of the things it does do is cut down the disease package in the soil. Mm -hmm. and, and so a lot of these, a lot of these diseases um, get into the soil, they stay in the soil, and if you don't rotate out of them, you build up the pathogens in the soil. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things, again, this comes out of Dwayne Beck's um, research at the Dakota Lakes Farms is it takes two years to decrease the pathogen load down to the point where it's minimal enough where the natural organisms can take over. So if you're doing, like in Canada, one of the favorite uh, rotations, their version of two crop monoculture is wheat, canola, wheat, canola, wheat, canola. And then sometimes wheat, canola, canola. And, and so they're building up all of these pathogens in their soil. They have a terrible problem now with club root because of all the canola in their fields. Okay. It's awful. And, and, and so we, I saw that problem in North Dakota with the scab issue, Fusarium head blight. Yep. North Dakota's historically dry. In 1993, it started raining. The year I started farming, it started raining. <laughs> like lots of rain, like 24 inches of rain in June sometimes, okay? And so what happened there is that there had been a lot of farmers raising wheat on wheat on wheat on wheat. 
guess where the fusarium problem started? And, and, and it spread. And, and so mm -hmm. in our fields that, that my dad had been farming, we'd always included barley and flax and in his, he'd already included barley and flax in the rotations. It took a couple of years and so did the rest of the neighbors. It took a couple of years for that scab problem to move five miles oh. and get into our fields. Oh, interesting. So rotation has a big impact. And so we, we monitor what we're doing with rotation. Sometimes we'll, again, this is a Dwayne Beck strategy, we'll double stack wheat on wheat, but then we'll come back and have two years where we'd never have wheat. Okay. We'll use peas and canola, flax, mm -hmm. and double up on those on broadleaf crops, which a lot of people don't. But again, if you don't, if you give time for like the white mold uh, pathogens to decrease by having wheat on wheat, or, or uh, now we've switched to, uh, we'll plant oats and then follow it with wheat, and so we get, two years of grass crops and then two years of broadleaf crops. That's kind of our goal. Doesn't work out perfectly like that. But we're always bringing those pathogen levels down before we bring in the next okay. set of crops. And so again, you start working with regenerative ag and it's like they start explaining how some of all that works. And again, my goal was just based on some research that he had done and then just applying it. Now we're getting into the nuts and bolts of why that works and, mm -hmm. and how you can make that work in the in the big sense of the word. So we're trying. We're also working very hard at not getting conned into the uh, just in case. You really should spray a fungicide just in case. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Or <laughs> you really should spray an insecticide just in case. Okay. Those types of things. And, and so... It's insurance. As insurance. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yep. And... But what that means is more aggressive scouting. Yeah. You've got to be in your fields. You've got to be knowing what's going on out there. And, and so that's stepped up the game for, for that for us on our farm. And I think to, to be involved in regenerative agriculture, you're either gonna have to hire an agronomist to be out there more often, or you're gonna have to do it yourself. Okay. Either way, but the goal is to use management instead of chemicals. Okay. That's one of, at least that's, that's one of my goals. Because when you're starting to use those chemicals, you're, now, you're, now you're adding a chemical load to your system. They have, they have impacts too just like pathogen loads have an impact to your system. So chemical has, has a loading effect on the system as well. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing, it, 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 this whole regenerative ag movement is happening at an, actually a very interesting time. Farmers are hurting. Mm -hmm. They're open to new ideas. True. Mm -hmm. When times are good, I mean, I've sold products like satellite imagery and software, it's like, Right. Why would I waste my time with that? I'm making money. Yeah. And now farmers are hurting, so they're open to exploring new ideas. We're also getting a, a new younger group in. Mm -hmm. They haven't heard this stuff. This is not the kind of stuff that they grew up with. Oh, okay. They're curious about it. Mm -hmm. I, the The meeting I was to in Brandon, where uh, Understanding Ag presented that academy, it was wonderful. There were babies and kids in that room. <laughs> oh, wow. It was it was so wonderful oh, to see families sitting around these tables mm -hmm. with their kids. And I didn't care if they were running around and yeah. having fun. Yeah. It was just to be in a room full of farmers with young families. Mm -hmm. You know, when we're all worried about the graying of America and or farmers and all sure. that kind of stuff. Here was a group of farmers, young farmers, who were trying to learn how to farm better. It was really touching yeah, to yeah. see that many young families in there. So the kids are getting it. I'm really hopeful for this next generation if we can give them the tools right. to help them be successful. Mm -hmm. um, 
a lot of that particular group, and I can only speak to that group, were interested in how to farm better, not bigger. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted to figure out how to do things right on their farm. Mm -hmm. They wanted to have time with their family. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my neighbors, uh, who's also in the program, we've had some good heart-to-hearts, and he said, you know, I've changed my mindset. He was into the get big, big, big ah. mode. Ah. He said, I don't want to do that. I've got three girls. They're, I don't know what they're like, 16, 14, 12. I want to be a dad for them because I know that time is going to be lost. Right. And this, I think, is a way that's going to allow me to farm my acres better, still make good money off of it, mm -hmm. and have time for my kids so mm -hmm. I can go to their basketball games mm -hmm. and go to their events. And that's, I see a lot of that. I hear a lot of that on you know, yeah. the, the Twitter and the, we've got a Facebook page uh, for the for our group up there, okay. and and uh, you, you see a lot of that family connection, mm -hmm. and uh, that just really impresses the heck out. Yeah, it really does. We'll get back to Paul Overby and Tom Revay in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Freight Star, for supporting today's episode. Transporting heavy machinery doesn't have to be a hassle. Freightstar makes it easy with an online marketplace that connects you for free with a trusted network of professional brokers and carriers. Find out more at freightstar.com. That's F-R-numeral-8-S-T-A-R.com. Now let's get back to the conversation as Paul explains how he got interested in niche marketing. Well, so now something I read about you, you were very interested in niche marketing. And um, it was really interesting to me because not only were you talking about the marketing side, but you were talking about it as a system, the niche marketing and the soil health and everything was, you're looking at all of it as a big picture. And I'd love to hear you talk about that. So this is actually kind of an interesting, and General Mills fits into this as, as do some other uh, suppliers. I, I followed the food movement since the, since the 1990s. My background is, fundraising, public relations, politics, okay? Oh, okay? So in order to do things in those fields, you have to understand where people are coming from. Uh -huh. So you can help move, move things along. Yes. So in the early 2000s, I was working with North Dakota Wheat Commission, and that's when glyphosate, Roundup Ready crops came out in the late 1990s. Okay. And, and the foodies were already New York Times, Washington Post, all the foodies then were already starting to raise concerns about that particular product um, and, and farmers didn't care. Um, mm -hmm. and, and as time moved along, we're starting to see where the food, the concerns of the public is starting to fit and come back to farmers, filter back to farmers, which is great. We actually switched into a diverse uh, food niche partly as a response to to diversifying and getting away from hauling all of our grain to one local elevator. So I started looking for places. We started raising white wheat. We were one of the early growers of hard white wheat in North Dakota and took it to the North Dakota State Mill. We started finding alternative markets for our flax instead of just hauling it to the elevator. We found processors that would give us another 50 cents or a dollar a bushel more because uh, they were cleaning it up and putting it into either the food market or the dog food market or whatever. They were you know, doing the extra things, not just crushing it. We started working with, as the sunflower industry moved from conventional sunflowers to middle lakes and high lakes, I always 
moved with that market okay. because I was getting closer and closer to a food market. And, and so I worked with uh, ADM in particular, somewhat with Cargill on those types of things. When canola first came out, we raised generic canola. When the uh, IP programs in canola started for uh, non-GMO canola, we were in that market, and we at that point we were hauling uh, up to Canada. Uh -huh. Actually, they were one of the first uh, uh, non-GMO markets, and and then we switched to uh, ADM, and now we're working with Bungie. But we stayed in the and that became the Nexera canola. It's a high lake canola that okay. can be used in deep fat fryers. So we've we've always that's been for, for our small acres. I've I've wanted to go with those types of things. As I was reading about what the food industry people were looking at and pushing on, I told my Mandak Zero-Tail board, you know, guys, we're doing what, what the customers here are starting to push on the companies over here uh -huh. to do. We've got to figure out how to connect our farms and those industry, the food processing industry and the customers. We, we need to be a part of that process. And that was why I was so interested when, when Tom and uh, Syngenta wanted to come and do that thing for our Mandak Zero Tail. It's like, yes, <laughs> finally, uh -huh. we are starting to put together those pieces. And, and this whole regenerative, when, when General Mills came out with the regenerative ag program, it's like, finally, we are starting to do the thing that I have had in the back of my mind for 20 years of how do we work. A lot of farmers, you know who the customer is? It's the elevator. Because I'd been on the Wheat Commission um, as a representative from a county to the Wheat Commission, I got to see all of the reasons why our customers didn't like grain that was low quality and we would haul to the elevator and they would take away 50 cents a bushel or a buck a bushel mm -hmm. and all farmers did was gripe about it at the coffee shop, right? right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I got to see why. I got to see what the industry was after, why it affected what they could deliver to their customers. I see. How it impacted a loaf of bread um, and what that did for the customers. And so that knowledge, this was all coming together, if you will, in my head at the same time or, or my learning curve. And it's like, so I started not thinking of the elevator as my customer. I started thinking of the consumer as my customer. Gotcha. And, and so what am I doing here to provide the kind of quality that my elevator is still gonna deliver it to a processor or an elevator someplace, but knowing how that's gonna impact the consumer down here. That'll probably be my goal to help farmers get to that point over the next 10 years. Because I think a lot of, I think the regenerative farmers are get that. They understand that, they're seeing that. And in fact, some of them are going so far as to want a direct market, niche products, whatever they got, beef, you know, I think sure. livestock, I can see a lot of these guys wanting to direct market livestock, but right. they understand this is a way, we're not raising, I'm not raising wheat, I'm raising food. And how I raise that food will impact what it does for my customer, which is not just, in our case, uh, the elevator, Patterson grain for oats, not just General Mills, but the person who buys that product from General Mills. Mm -hmm. That's a change, that's a change in mindset to start looking at who my customer really is. Right. In you know, North Dakota, we're kind of lucky. I can raise eight crops and I have a market for them. Uh -huh. And that's gonna be one of the challenges in say the Midwest, when we're talking about trying to diversify rotations, 
where did the oats buyers go? Mm. You know, I mean, where are the markets that they're, they're gonna have to redevelop? If we're gonna diversify in the Midwest, mm -hmm. they, some of the markets are gonna have to redevelop again for some of these alternative okay. grains. I've got five elevators I can deliver oats to, and, okay. you know, a bunch of them are gonna be in Canada, but nonetheless, I mean, it's not just the Patterson grain chain, but there's several other elevators. If I wanted to deliver oats, I can, I can haul someplace yeah. else. And what were the eight, you said, flax, oats, oh. wheat? Field peas, canola, soybeans. We didn't plant sunflowers this year, but some years I've planted sunflowers okay. as well. We did plant fava beans this year. Might not plant those again. <laughs> so, did I get them all? That was eight. Yeah. Is that eight? Uh -huh. Yeah. And you then also have covers growing. Cover, cover crops? Cover crops? Yeah. Um, we've been working at it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a challenge. Uh -huh. Part of it is, I always chuckle when I read people from down in this part of the world talking about their short growing season. But um, <laughs> the- Because you must be quite short. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So we're, we're harvesting small grains mid-August to mid-September. Okay. And if you're trying to plant cover crops post-harvest mm -hmm. to get them up and growing, the sunlight, you know, the other thing is get sunlight angle, right? Sure. Northern latitudes, the sun angle really starts shifting yeah. by the 1st of September. And, and so you have a, a timing problem of one, being able to plant when you're trying to harvest, and then two, getting them tall enough so that they can capture sunlight. That's, people will talk about growing degree days. I don't think it's growing degree days. It has to do with sunlight because okay. I've planted cover crops when it's been fairly warm in the fall, and if you get them in too late, they're still gonna be short. Okay. Um, I planted them when it's cold in the fall, and they'll still get uh -huh. about the same height. Okay. So I, I really think it has to do with the angle of the sun. If you've got, if you've got a plant that you can get to be this tall, and you get the sun rays coming at it like this, you've got a lot of ability to capture sun. But if the plant's only this tall, uh -huh. you just you don't get the sunlight okay. out of it, even if it's 60, 70, 80 above, which we've had a lot of Septembers where it's been 80 above through the whole month. So uh -huh. it, isn't, it isn't just temperature. So you have that problem of getting enough growth to um, say that we succeeded in planting cover crops. Um, I see. And so we've been, I've been struggling with this. We've tried aerial seeding, we've tried uh, direct seeding, things like that. It's too wet, it's too cold. Uh, 2018, uh, we planted them a little, little bit late, mid-September. They look beautiful and <laughs> So had the General Mills guys out for a tour and I said, well, we gotta stop by over this field because I think they should be looking pretty good by now. It's been a week since I've been there. They were all dead. Oh no. It froze. We oh. got down to 18 above, oh killed everything. <laughs> yeah, you know. Jeez. So, and then this year we had snow on October 12th. Uh -huh. You know, right. I mean, so how do you, how do you handle that? Um, three years ago, it was dry. Mm -hmm. It was so dry that even where I direct seeded, it never came up. Mm -hmm. and, and then when it finally did come up, it was uh, about the 1st of October. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the biggest challenge we have as you move into the you know, Northern Plains, North Dakota, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, where we're trying to do a lot of these pro programs. Cover crops is a challenge. Yeah. And these growers are trying to harvest their small grains in September, and it's freezing up shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. so, that's, so, that's, but so you look at other things that they can do as far as, you know, like really cover cropping or, or yeah. maybe some sort of like an intercropping or maybe yep. underseeding of a perennial uh -huh. into that, into their canola or small grains or something to that effect or even in uh, 
pulse crops. I've seen some of that work going on as well too. To get it get the start, to get it into that September time frame and over winter as well. So yep. there are ways, they're all challenging as Paul yep. has described, but uh, without doubt, yeah, I mean, cover crops in Manitoba or North Dakota is gonna be a whole lot different than cover crops here in uh, St. Louis, yeah. Missouri, or Oklahoma, yeah. Kansas. Yeah. Right. So one of the, again, back to the five soil health principles is keeping a living root in the ground, right? So a couple of things that I think we need to also be thinking about, which we're, we haven't talked much about yet, although some are, and that is we always have, you got two shoulders, right? Spring and fall. And there's been a huge amount of uh, focus on getting cover crops planted in the fall. And most of them have been, um, self-terminating because of the cold. Right. But what we haven't done a lot of work on is how do we then, whether it's winter wheat or rye or something like that, get a cover crop growing in the spring because we'll typically start, if the snow starts melting, um, you'll get volunteer grain starting March sometime, you know, okay. early April. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have this 30 day window of time and depending upon, you know, when you plant maybe like a sunflower or soybean crop a little later in May, you might even have 40 days of time frame when we could have something growing in that season as well. So we need to start thinking through when we're planting our cover crops, what it is that we can plant that will overwinter. And okay. it might just be as simple as throwing some winter wheat in there and having it uh -huh. growing in the next spring, something that'll survive uh -huh. um, and come back the next spring. We've started, we did three different trials this year on, on planting cover crops with our small grain crops. Um, one of them droughted out <laughs> and, and the other two were into wheat uh, and, they, and they did okay. I, the drilling process didn't work very well because it was a new drill. Anyway, <laughs> that didn't work well. But, uh -huh. but the stuff that did get planted came up nice. Okay. And, it was, and, it, and it did exactly what I wanted it to do in the understory, and that is where we had a nice stand of wheat, the cover crop was not taking anything away. It stayed short. Okay. Where, where I had like a skip or a gap mm -hmm. uh, in the row, then you know, the cover crop was this tall. Okay. So it wasn't overpowering the small grain. That's what, that's what we want to have. Uh -huh. We want it to grow, but we're not overpower. And so we tried, one of them was seeded with the grain at the time of seeding. The other was seeded after the grain was fully uh, emerged about four leaf stage. And, and then we planted into the standing grain. Ah. We don't have quite the advantage you have with row crops where you can you know, run a hoagie down in between and plant. So uh -huh. we actually direct drilled in, in, in there. Some people, uh, Carrington Research Center is doing, NDSU Carrington Research Center is doing uh, doing it with broadcasting okay. and you're dependent on rain again to get it in and you sometimes right. have to plant twice as much just like the guys that are flying on the rye you know sure. uh -huh. got to use 80 pounds if you're if you're drilling it you can use 25 pounds oh, okay. and you know that kind of stuff so ah. so we need to work on that i think that has a lot of potential uh -huh. and that's one of the things kent and i talked about for our project field next year is which will be oats next year is what are we going to plant for cover crop and what how we stage it do we try it with the seed again because i did try a little bit with oats this year or do we go ahead and plant it as a separate crop after the oats is there's a stage where you can go in and go over the top of the crop and it's not going to hurt the yield right yeah. so okay um, we'll see but we need to learn those things and i think there's some of the some of the other the other stuff that's going on out of canada is is intercropping 
mm-hmm. where we're mixing two species of grain and seeing if there's some synergistic effects off of those. We're still gonna have the problem with continuing after, you know? So if you plant peola as a big one or the planting peas and canola at the same time, you're still gonna harvest them S- September 1st, 12th, 15th. Yeah. And then you still have that 15th of September until 1st of November where you've got bare ground. Are they harvesting those together and separating? And then you start getting into the whole, some of the biological things that are going on there. So you get peas that are nodulating. So you get some nitrogen being put in the ground. Can you back off nitrogen? So that's also part of the whole intercropping trial. Now I can get away with a little less nitrogen. You also get into disease issues. Now you don't have all of those plants all touching each other. So you get some things there trying planting this gets back into some of the green planting where you get green planted with the canola so up there one of our big problems is is flea beetles in the in the in the spring they'll i mean they will literally turn the ground black they'll go in when the canola has just emerged they just snip those buggers off and it's ground they've discovered that flea beetles are color blind if you want to call it that okay. they recognize green but they can't distinguish a canola green from a green something else really so if we can plant canola into a winter wheat field or something else that's green uh-huh. we might be able to eliminate an insecticide so okay. i mean you know those are the kinds of discoveries that that are, are going on through this program and, and again another fortuitous thing one farmers are um uh, willing to adapt because of the times. The times are a little tougher. They're willing to look around and try something new. There's also two other things that have happened, and that's called Twitter and, and Facebook. Mm. This is spreading so fast. Ah. I mean, we work for years <laughs> on trying to get people to try no-till. Ah. For years. And now, with, with, uh, with Twitter and Facebook, where farmers can post their pictures and share their ideas. And YouTube. In YouTube, yeah, YouTube videos, <laughs> it is spreading fast. Yeah. And, and so I think the adoption curve for this whole regenerative ag thing is going to, the typical adoption curve is 20 years. Mm. I don't think we're gonna have a 20 year adoption curve on this. I think 10, 10 years maybe, uh-huh. where we're gonna be hitting that critical mass. Yep. So I'm assuming you both know conventional farmers also. Yeah, all my neighbors, yeah. <laughs> except one. Yeah. And so we're talking about how it's all catching on, mm-hmm. but there are plenty of people, lots of people who are not. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, I mean, the 2017 ag survey, uh, cover crops are adopted by less than 5% of farmers. Right. And so one of my neighbors, and when we, you know, good friends grew up together and all that kind of stuff. And so he was explaining to me, he, he bought himself a coulter. Oh. And so how he's using that and that, that's working really good. Uh-huh. And you know, and, and that's given him confidence to cut down before planting um, his wheat on his bean stubble. Okay. He's just coltering it and uh-huh. then going in and seeding. Uh-huh. And some of these guys, you know, they're they're older. In his case, he's a few years older than I am. And and so, you know, we did a lot of variable rate mm-hmm. stuff in North Dakota. I did a lot of seminars and teaching on variable rate applications. Other people are adopting it, but even this the same neighbor said, "Yeah, he said I know they're adopting it. It probably would work, but I'm too old." Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right? But but as as you so so you know so this agronomist hears from somebody 50 miles away, and then he learns, and he brings it back, and now he's got people signed up. But that's I mean that's that's the normal curve. Mm-hmm. Like the the if you would look at variable rate precision ag variable rate applying nutrients, that's one of those that still is climbing the curve 
one of my things I've been pushing on Kent a little bit is I think they need to bring that in. Uh-huh. It's not part of their protocol, but I think they need to bring it in there. And, uh-huh. and here's why. This soil in this part of my field needs different attention to it than this soil in this part of my field. Right. And so even if we're talking regenerative ag, if we're still treating the whole field the same way, mm-hmm. we're missing the fact that what's going on in the biology in this corner is different than the biology in this corner. And we have the tools right now with precision ag to change how we deal with those mm-hmm. two parts. And so mm-hmm. one of my challenges to the soil health people at both NDSU and the University of Minnesota was we need to have, we need to bring precision ag people and soil conservation people into the same room and start talking the same language. Mm-hmm. Because we're really trying to accomplish the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just soil conservation or soil, not soil conservation, the conservation agriculture people have not typically looked to precision ag and the precision ag are kind of all about technology, right. not about the soil, yeah. even though they're impacting the soil. Right. And I was at two meetings last year that were a month apart. Uh-huh. The dynamics of those two meetings were like night and day. And I just like, Wow, that's when it dawned on me. These people were trying to accomplish the same thing, but they don't know each other's language. So, but that's, you know, we need to bring those pieces together because I think that's another way to tie this whole thing together. Mm -hmm. It's part of the, that's the other way I've been saving on nutrients is, I have good soil organic matter on say 25, 30% of my field, but I've got another 25, 30% that as much as we've been no-tilling, mm-hmm. it still isn't there. Okay. It's got some soil limitation. pH is the biggest problem we've got up on the plains. Mm-hmm. Midwest, it's it's the other way, right? Uh-huh. Um, but but high pH in the in, in our area is a limiting factor. I and I found if I try to be too aggressive with cutting back uh, nitrogen, I really hurt my yields. Oh, okay. Because the pH ties up the nitrogen, and uh-huh. so you have to overwhelm the system basically. Uh-huh. Um, so we have done a little bit of experience on one field to just plant cover crops in those areas. So if you have limited time, limited resources, why not put it where it can really do something? Well, I got 6% organic matter. Do I need more cover crops in that area? Probably not. I mean, I got a good system going I there. See. But when I got 3.5% organic matter in an area, that's where I want to make sure I have something growing. Mm. So mm-hmm. using moisture, high pH, wet, you know, all those kinds of things, poor drainage. So I want to have roots growing in there. Thanks to no-tiller Paul Overby and Tom Bay of General Mills for this conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Freightstar, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at no-till farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.